Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. That was a very good introduction that we did today. Did you like that introduction? It was good, yeah. It was very spooky. It was. It's almost Halloween, which reminds me. It's almost will Halloween. Will this episode go up in time for Halloween? It will. Oh, no, last week. No, no, you're right, yeah. This one will go up on the day before Halloween. So that's why we did the spooky intro. Yeah, we planned this. We totally... Yeah. Planned it, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Wasn't spontaneous in any way. Have you done anything interesting this week in the comic related milieu? I have not. No, neither have I. So. How about it's the Flash? I have not. That's good. Second Flash was good though. Okay. Anyway, that's it. So, nothing to say. And when I have nothing to say, my lips are sealed. Only they're not. Only they're not, yeah. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything to listen to, would there? Should we read an email? I think should we should. read a missive? Yeah. Should we delve into the bottomless sack? Should we give all of our emailers spooky names as well? <laughs> to, to kind of hide the fact that we've not done a Halloween episode yeah. yet again. Like, this is an email from Mikey Mike. Gee whiz, that's scary. Bailey. Yes. Excellent. Good. No, have we, haven't we said we'd do a Halloween episode every single year? And we do, yeah. Every single year we've never done one. No. <laughs> it's the level of incompetence you have come to expect yeah. from this show. I mean, it was just dumb. No, it wasn't. We planned it, didn't we? Of course. We've yeah. already said that we planned it. Michael says, Leyland's, to which I say, Bailey's, mm. which is a drink. It's quite a nice drink. Mm. I have consulted with my vast phalanx of attorneys, and they have advised me that for the moment no legal action can be taken for you using the name Nothing But The 90s. Apparently the fact that I was a lazy bastard and never actually went through with doing that series of episodes negates any legal claim to the name. So combine that with the fact that I like you, and no cease and desist letters will be coming your way. (laughs) Well, we like you too, Mike. This is probably going to be a short one, that's what she said, because I have only read one of the three books you have discussed today. I used to have Web of Spider-Man 100, but I sold it recently, or I gave it away, or I had to pay someone to take it. The details are fuzzy, but it looks like I dodged the proverbial bullet by not reading it. I've only sampled a few of Terry Cavanaugh's Spider-Man stories, and nothing personal to the guy, because I'm sure he's a lovely fellow that gives to charity and dotes on his family, and will one day lead the revolution against the machines, or whatever. But he never really grabbed me as a writer. So thanks for saving me the time. This will not be forgotten. You're very welcome. We read Web of Spider-Man 100 to spur the nation. To spur the world from the crime that was that (laughs) comic. It may. It was pretty aerodynamic, though. Yeah, it was. It has to be said. It blew right across the room. (laughs) Sincerely, thank you for saving me the pain of having to read the issue of FF that you covered. Sounded like tripe. Again, your service to fankind will go down in history. Actually, we didn't mind that issue of the FF. Not. No, Which no. One was it? Sue, Sue Yancey Streetwalker. Oh, so, right, right. Copyright, Chris Franklin. Yes. Yeah. It's funny, though. Yeah. Yancey Streetwalker was the best name that came out of that. 
anyway, Michael continues. So that leaves Electric Blue Superman. This is a prime example of not being into something at the time of publication, but looking back fondly on it later when something worse came along. To be fair, I was excited for the costume and power change when it hit in 1997. Things had gotten a little stagnant in the Superman books over the course of 96, and between the marriage and then this costume power change, things were gelling again. And this was big news when it came out. I remember visiting a friend in Pennsylvania around the time the issue came out and waking up to see Carl Kiesel on CNN talking about it. So this was another example of something happening in the Superman books that the real world took some limited interest in. Well, I liked the changes the new powers costumes brought at first as the year wore on, my interest waned. By the time we got to Superman Red, Superman Blue, I was pretty much done with it. So you can imagine that my excitement for Superman Forever, the lenticular-covered special that brought the traditional costume back, was pretty high. If the story had gone out on a higher note, I probably wouldn't have been so excited, but the Millennium Giants, the plot device used to get rid of the two Supermen, was pretty weak. So I filed that away as a low point in my Superman collecting and moved on to bigger and better things, thinking that it can only get better from here. Then the 2000s happened. <laughs> I don't know what I'm laughing at there is he's put wait for Andy to stop laughing. <laughs> Oh, he knows me so well. The 2000s, as Andy has said a number of times, were a roller coaster ride for the Man of Steel. I actually think I've said they were crap. Yes. <laughs> sure, Loeb was doing great things with the character, and Joe Kelly would write the occasional good story. But other than that, it was more miss than hit. This culminated in 2002-2003, which I consider the Vietnam of my Superman collecting. You weren't there, man! You weren't there! During that time, I looked back on the Electric Blue era with fondness. Rationally, I know I complained about it quite a bit towards the end, but with everything going on in the Superman books at the time, the Blue and then Blue-Red era was starting to look pretty good. Now I view it through the rose-tinted glasses of nostalgia and wonder what I will think of it when Jeff and I finally get to that era on From Crisis to Crisis. Hope all is well. Take her, Mikey might be. Yeah, it was good how he slid that plug in for his show into the body of the email. We're very impressed with professional. Yeah, it would have been subtle if I didn't notice. If you hadn't noticed, (laughs) if he just slid it right by you, he wouldn't have noticed, would you? Can't get plugs under my radar. Professional dude, Mm. you know, we could learn a thing (laughs) or two about promoting ourselves in that way mm-hmm. and not going in the middle of an idle conversation. Oh, by the way, I do a podcast. <laughs> That's not subtle. No. no. Thank you, Michael, for emailing in. Michael sent us another email, but we don't read two emails from the same person in one show. We do not. So we will come back to that one next time. So that means that the next email is from Kyle Benning, who says, Forgive me, Leylands, for I have sinned. I like the idea that we're a confessional. Yeah. <laughs> It's been several months since my last feedback email due to life being crazy hectic for the past couple of months. I've fallen off the wagon of my devout podcast listening. But I've been rectifying that these past two weeks. Well, Carl, I think you've just had a baby, so you are forgiven. My son. I loved your coverage and critical analysis of Hush, Legends, Greyhulk, Seven Soldiers of Victory. Your coverage of Forever Evil confirmed that it didn't sound like my cup of tea. I appreciated your coverage nevertheless, and my wallet thanks you for spurring it some cash. To avoid rehashing other listeners' thoughts on the past episodes that have long since erred, I will keep my in-depth discussion and comments restricted to your coverage of the original Spider-Man clone saga and 90s episodes. First, thank you for high praise of Ross Andrew. He was an extremely talented artist and one of my all-time favourites. He's one of mine as well, Kyle, so we are in full agreement. Reading the original Clone Saga was quite the chore. So many problems, inconsistencies, and just what the heck was going on? It really doesn't stand as a, you want to read a good story? Read this. 
Which begs the question, do you think that this is Jerry Conway really trying in this story? Do you think it's possible that Jerry was so disgruntled that this editorial mandate to bring back the character he hated and killed off caused him to throw in the towel and write a somewhat garbage story that he didn't really try on? I mean, this is the guy that wrote one of the greatest runs of the Justice League of America, including issue 200, which may be the best single-issue superhero comic ever. Maybe we should have covered that for issue 200, mm-hmm. episode 200. Um, I don't know necessarily that he wasn't really trying. I just think, as with a lot of Bronze Age stories, I think well, he just got so caught up in the plot that they didn't really think it through. I mean, they were writing that stuff by the seat of their pants, mm-hmm. and I don't think he sat down and thought through an awful lot of it properly. And in some cases, I think it suffered from the writer knowing the story. The thing that, when did the Jackal discover Peter was Spider-Man, that we harped on about constantly. He knew. Mm. He just forgot to tell us, the reader. So that kind of implies to me it's not that he wasn't trying, it's just that, you know... He forgot. Yeah, maybe he was just so caught up in the details of the story, the the finer points just slid by him. Mm. That's just my thinking, anyway. He was out of the door when he was writing the Clone Saga. He was off over to DC, wasn't he? So It is hard to believe that the same guy who wrote those issues and created Firestorm could create this mess. I mean, some of the oops moments in this story are bigger than a Bob Haney plot hole in an issue of Brave and the Bold, and I do love Bob Haney, Brave and the Bold. His use of Spider-Sense drove me nuts. Danger is danger. It doesn't matter who it is. I blame this fast and loose approach with the spider sense as the reasoning used for why the Venom symbiote suit doesn't trip Spidey's sense. By the time Venom comes on the scene, the spider sense had been used so fast and loose to fit the story that the precedent was already set to just wipe it out entirely when it came to Venom. Jumping way ahead to Conway's return to Spider-Man, his retcon in the annual is absolutely atrocious, and even afterwards he refuses to let elements die. He continued to use Carrion 2 and really keep opening the Clone Saga can of worms. To me, it isn't any coincidence that a new sprawl in Clone Saga would run a few years later. I think Jerry certainly shares some of that responsibility. If Jerry had left it all alone and not tried to create more plot holes and loose ends in his terrible revisit, would the 90s Clone Saga have ever happened at all? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because they needed some reason to get rid of Peter. At the time that they did it, it was totally going to be real, wasn't it? Yeah. Except no substitutes, but then they changed the mind. I really enjoyed your 90s comic coverage. I don't really have a whole lot to add, and you two have pretty much hit the nail on the head. Some really bad, some really good. Despite the sales of the time, which were heavily Marvel and Image in the early half of the decade, I think the quality cake goes to DC, who managed to steer clear of those 90s tropes for the most part. The worst example would be the Bloodline story that ran through the annuals. Other than that, I think DC hit some high points in story quality in the Superman titles, Kingdom Come, and the numerous Vertigo titles. I think one of the real forgotten gems of that era is the Jerry Ordway Power of Shazam Captain Marvel series. I think that is one of the all-time great comic book runs and the definitive take on the character, but I don't think it's ever properly been reprinted. If either of you are interested in a really great Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan Green Lantern read from this era, the Emerald Knight story is recommended from Green Lantern 100 through 105. It is writer Ron Mars' personal favourite from his lengthy run. He told me so himself. I can't wait for more. Your relapsed but born again listener, Kyle Benning. Thank you very much, Kyle. Our next email... Oh, it's the mighty Luke! The mighty Luke Giaconetta. The hosts of this podcast have been replaced with more commercially viable alternatives. 90s episode 2. All new Andy and dark and gritty Michael. Woo, more 90s! Gotta love it. My sweet spot, so to speak. Some thoughts... 
I actually was reading Green Lantern right up to Emerald Dawn and dropped the book after issue 50 because I was not happy about Hal Jordan going bananas and turning into a villain. Oh well, in retrospect, I should have stayed on as Sean Engel has ably demonstrated over on just one of the guys because the book got better with Kyle as the hero. He had a good run even if he's now shuffled off to the side of the current DCU. Ghost Rider's popularity might be a mystery to you guys, but it's undeniable. At this time, not only did he stir in two monthly books, Ghost Rider and Spirit of Vengeance, but he was also a regular in Marvel Comics Presents, as well as the anchor of an entire line of comics, the Midnight Suns books, consisting of Ghost Rider, Spirits of Vengeance, Morbius, Night Stalkers, and Darkhold. And this would be the third Ghost Rider, Danny Ketch, the original one being the Marvel Western character, and Johnny Blaze, going by his real name at the time, wielding a Hellfire shotgun. Seriously. Wade and Ringo's run on The Flash is just fantastic fun. Yeah, I love uh, Wade's Flash. Some notes on the books you did not recognise. Shadow Man was an extremely popular and very good Valiant book following the adventures of Jack Boniface, a New Orleans saxophone player who was thrust into the role of Shadow Man to battle voodoo priests and other supernatural threats. And I love that only in comics is that a log line that you totally go, yeah, okay. Yeah. You just totally accept that that's a great thing. One of Valiant's mainstays, there is a Shadow Man ongoing, currently being published by the modern Valiant. Shadow Hawk was Jim Valentino's entry into the image launch. Shadow Hawk was a brutal New York City vigilante who paralysed his victims by breaking their spines. <laughs> That's not funny. But unlike many of the other violent heroes of the time, others reacted in disgust and revulsion at his actions, and he was actively hunted by the police. Savage Dragon was even hired to take him down in issue four. While the Shadowheart did not have a secret identity in his first miniseries, that was part of the story. There were multiple people who could have been him, and the mystery of his identity was an ongoing plot thread which would not be revealed until midway through the second miniseries. I always thought that was a cool idea. Mm. To actually have a comic where you don't know the secret identity of the main guy. Yeah. And you've got a whole bunch of supporting characters that you follow and you have to work out who he is. Like, I, like Mysterion. Exactly like Mysterion, <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure Funeral Pie refers to the second Venom miniseries which co starred The Punisher. Our Marines was a spin-off book of Valiant's extremely popular title, Exo Man of War. I never read this one, so I can't speak to the quality, but the gold cover bears mentioning. Valiant's gold cover programme was not a sales gimmick. The gold covers had extremely limited print runs, I want to say 500 apiece, and you could not buy them. Instead, they were given to fans and retailers who went above and beyond in their devotion and promotion of Valiant comics. Whilst not commanding the big book, they did at the time, the gold books are still sought after and do sell for decent money. As an aside, Valiant was one of the absolute best publishers of the early 90s, and the fact that you can find lots of their books in the cheap bins is not a testament of their quality. Instead, it's a virtual gold mine of good comics waiting to be picked up on the cheap. Enjoying the 90s coverage and looking forward to more, Luke. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Three long ones though, so we've just got time to squeeze in a short one from the mighty Chris Franklin. Young Spawn Cats. Drinking diarrhea is better than drinking puke. <laughs> did we say that? I think we did. Oh, okay. This, this almost made me ruin my at-work monitor via spit take and create a spectacle by guffawing out loud in my cubicle. This is why I love your show, from the heights of critical examination straight to bawdy bathroom humour and all places in between. <laughs> Well, we're glad you appreciated that. I almost caught that because I thought it was a bit too vulgar. Fair enough. But then I thought, well, the conversation won't make any sense. You can never be too vulgar. You can never be too... I think you can be a little bit too vulgar. Isn't the line a dot on this show? 
No, the line is something that we passed a long yeah, yeah, time yeah. ago, actually. Well, we appreciate that we made you uh, spit all over your monitor, Chris. That's great. I wouldn't say it was the heights of critical examination. Maybe maybe the middle of critical <laughs> examination. I really don't have much to add, continues Chris. I didn't say in my previously filled Lee McFarlane letter. For favourite 90s boots, in addition to many of those you two mentioned, I'll add these because you didn't ask. Robin by Chuck Dixon was one of the most enjoyable comics for a good 100 issue run, plus the three miniseries. And if you haven't read these, I think you'd enjoy them. Dixon managed to capture much of the flavour of the early Spider-Man. Plus you get great artwork by Tom Grummet, Mike Waringo and Pete Woods, amongst others. Yeah, Robin is on my list of things to go back and find. We have got some, haven't we? We've got all the Nightfall stuff. Yeah. And I've read the first three miniseries. I just didn't follow his solo book for a while. Yeah. I always read it when it crossed over. You're like, Cataclysm and mm. Avalanche or whatever it was called when they had the earthquake. Was it called Earthquake? What was the Batman story called? Af- no, what was that Aftershock? So Cataclysm must have been and then it was No Man's Land. So I read it when all of that was happening. JLA by Morrison and Porter really put the majesty back into that title for the first time since the early 80s when Perez was drawing the book. I think it's definitely Morrison's best straight superhero work. Mind-blowing concepts that were still comprehensible. Starman by James Robinson, Tony Harris and Peter Schnizberg. I don't know if that's his name, Schnizberg. is my all-time favourite finite comic run. You guys really need to jump into this one. Robinson weaves DC history into a deeply personal family narrative. I will admit to tearing up a few times while reading this series. It's pure comics joy. Everyone recommends Sandman, don't they? Sandman, Starman. Yeah, everyone recommends Sandman as well. Yeah. So, yeah, everyone recommends that. So, at some point, we will have to... Read. Even if it's digital. Even if it's digital. So now they they didn't carry on with the trades, did they? Mm. Scum. Anyway, thank you very much, Christopher, Luke, Kyle, and Michael for emailing in this day. We still have lots pootling around in the sack. All those people that were mentioned in issue 200, plus another couple of people that have already emailed in for us to get to. We may have to do an email show to burn through some of these at some point. But we'll worry about that. We may do it over Christmas, mm. actually. May, may have put a couple of out over Christmas. All right, thank you very much to all those that have emailed, and we are waiting to get to your email. Thank you those that we read tonight, and thank you for listening, lovely people. We will be back with more Hey Kids Comics 1980. Thank you, Mark Taylor, after this break. <laughs> Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. Greetings, citizens. Join me, your old bat chum, John S. Drew, on my journey to discover what it is I love about the classic 1966 Batman television series on the Batcave podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest host as we review the classic television series there's a new episode every two weeks same bat time same bat channel on itunes stitcher radio or at the batcavepodcast.com holy memoranda folks make a note not to miss it good thinking robin 
1983, the Bronze Age of comics was still in full swing, with DC still following their tried-and-true paths without real innovation. Jim Shooter's editorial reign at Marvel, however, was bearing some tasty fruit. Frank Miller's run on Daredevil was reaching a crescendo after a number of years of being a critical and commercial darling, but Uncanny X-Men had entered a new era of greatness with the arrival of Paul Smith on art duties. Roger Stern was writing both The Amazing Spider-Man and The Avengers, and making both titles engrossing superhero-based character dramas, a move followed by John Byrne in how he approached the Fantastic Four and his new book Alpha Flight. Marvel Tales had begun reprinting the early Lee Ditko Spider-Man stories, and the further adventures of Indiana Jones followed Star Wars as another Lucasfilm-licensed book. Speaking of Star Wars, hype for Return of the Jedi meant that, for the first time, the movie adaptation got its own miniseries as opposed to being part of the main comic. Bill Mantlo was following in Roger Stern's footsteps in making Peter Parker a decent comic in its own right, and Marvel were experimenting with glossy-papered high-end reprints of the best-remembered stories from the 1970s, such as Warlock, Moon Knight, and Captain Marvel. Original graphic novels like God Loves Man Kills and The New Mutants, and expensive direct-sales-only comics like Marvel Fanfare, were also experimental and innovative. Some comics had great painted or photo covers, and artistic innovation from artists like Frank Miller and Vilsenkovich was encouraged. With Walt Simonson taking over Thor and the year ending with the wacky hijinks of Assistant Editors Month, an argument can be made, I think, that 1983 was Marvel's best-sustained year since the late 1960s. For DC, however, the early part of the 1980s progressed pretty much as they'd begun. There was precious little in the way of new concepts or during innovation at DC throughout 1983. What was being tried with the main Batman titles was an interesting experiment, with both Batman and Detective Comics essentially being treated as a bi-weekly continued comic. The same writer handled both books, and the plots intertwined between the two. The new Teen Titans was DC's darling, a critically adored, commercially successful relaunch of a two-time failure. Marv Wolfman and George Perez managed to make a book that was, at times, outselling some of Marvel's biggest names. Otherwise, it was business as usual. Whilst there were flashes of brilliance, such as The Brave and the Bold, whenever it was written by Alan Brennett, or Mike W. Barr's Green Arrow miniseries, Wonder Woman still resolutely refused to be interesting, and Green Lantern, The Flash, and The Justice League all seemed stuck in a rut. The cancellation of The Brave and the Bold to make way for Batman and The Outsiders also signified the beginning of the end of the team-up book, with Marvel 2-in-1 also ending this year, coincidentally almost at the same time. However, the winds of change were starting to blow for DC. Frank Miller jumped ship after leaving Daredevil to write a bookshelf-format creator-owned miniseries called Ronin, and over in the saga of the Swamp Thing, the year would end with the beginning of a run that would turn around DC's fortunes. Alan Moore's The Anatomy Lesson. For Superman, it was the year Gil Kane arrived. Kane, a veteran comics artist with a very Marmite style, arrived on Action Comics and turned completely on its head the notion that all Superman comics had to look exactly the same as they had for the past couple of decades. Love it or hate it, and people still debate this run, it was definitely memorable. Superman also regularly appeared in DC's Best of Digests as well. The Chris Reeve movie's doing a lot to keep the character in the public eye, and DC rode that wave all the way to the beach. There were also a number of memorable DC Comics Presents stories, including a great annual that featured Superwoman. Our randomly picked Superman issue for this year, however, is issue 380, cover dated February 1983. 
Superman plunging into the past runs the cover. Superboy flying into the future. And both headed for a senses-shattering smash-up. Drawn by Ross, Andrew and Dick Giordano, the aforementioned find themselves hurtling at each other, a purple, red and yellow background behind them. It's visually exceptionally striking, the background signifying the time stream that Superman and Superboy are traversing. Uh, I didn't think that looked like Ross, Andrew. Mm. Guy drew Spider-Man in the clone stuff. Yeah. Did you look at that and think that's the same guy? No. I got Ed Hannigan off that. I got a distinct Ed Hannigan vibe off that cover. Do you know I really love that cover? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's exceptionally colourful. The background being a blending of purples, pinks, darker pink, lighter pink, and yellows. So you're kind of like, well, where the hell are they? Are they in the middle of the sun? Hmm. Are they in another dimension? Or what? I mean, you find when you read the issue that they travel in the time stream. I think they do an exceptionally good job of differentiating between Superman and Superboy. Yeah. Although, oh, I don't know, actually. Would Superboy at 16 be the age that he was going to be at 28? No, boys have a growth spurt when they're about 18, don't they? Okay. Boys do have another growth spurt after high school. It's girls who tend to stop at 16. Right, so, because I was going to point out Superboy's a lot shorter than Superman and he should really be at the height that he's going to be by that point. Mm. But maybe he had a growth spurt when he was 17. Yeah. Unless he was played by Tom Welling, in which case he was six foot nine all the time. <laughs> I do, I really do like that cover. You're going to say that you don't, aren't you? There's not much of it. But that's, it's the colour scheme that makes it. I mean, in essence, you're right, it's two figures flying at each other and then a, a background. They're also very small figures as well. No, they're far away. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the the cover... In relation to the cover, they are both rather small. But I think you can argue a case that to fit both full figures on, they would have to be. I mean, you could have angled it slightly different had Superman flying in from the top left directly, as opposed to being a little bit off-centre. Yeah. But then he would have been covered up by the logo. But it's only like that because of the cover print. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They have to allow room for the logo. They don't need the text... Why? They also don't, okay, if they're going to have it, they don't need it to be that big and taking up that room, because they're very spread out as well, meaning you're limited in your cover. Hmm, see, this does go back to something that we discussed last week, doesn't it? The, yeah. The cover, that tells you the plot of the issue. Yeah. Without that cover copy, you're just left with Superman and Superboy flying at each other. And you may be right, that may be a more visually striking image, because then you're going, what's going on? Why are they doing that? What? 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 Yeah. See, the cover copy gives away the story. Yeah. Doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't tell you what happens, but it gives away the premise. See, covers were different then, though. Covers had to bring you in. Mm. And do you think that cover copy would bring you in or make you go, oh, I know the plot now. I was probably buying it. The cover copy, maybe. It's just the cover copy takes up more room than the cover. You think? Yeah. Uh, I love it. I think that cover's really cool. Oh. I think the colour scheme's great. I think Superman, the logo may have been better if it was the red and blue one rather than the white and blue. Then the red will... Yeah, actually, you're probably right. Yeah, maybe that's why they did it white. Mm. I love it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And let's be honest, 1983 is my golden year, isn't it? Yeah. The comics here are 25 pence, which is how much I remember them being when I was buying them. And they weren't 25p for as long as I think they were. Mm. It's just in my memory that time was, was stretched. But every single one of these this year, this week, sorry, is 25p comic. Yeah. 1983 is my golden year. Because comics are cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares how good they are as long as they're cheap? Not just that though, they're, they're good. Nothing sucks this week. I don't want to shoot me load, <laughs> but I don't. We'll leave that to later. Okay. 
But I didn't think anything sucked this week. A Mind Switch in Time was written by Curry Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Dave Hunt. Superman is zooming back in time to verify Professor Lang's theory about something in times past. Superboy is zooming forward in time to attend a meeting of the Legion of Superheroes. Suddenly, a crack in time appears before them, and they collide. Both are sent hurtling back the way they came. For what happens to Superboy, you'll have to read issue 38 of his own title. But for us, Superman awakens to find himself in 1983, facing a mirror image older than he is used to. He quickly figures out some kind of mind transference has occurred. Superboy's 16-year-old mind is now in 29-year-old Superman's body. Oh boy. Elsewhere, Jimmy Olsen witnesses a potential suicide being literally talked off the ledge by a man who seems to take away his pain. Before Jimmy can say, I need my pain, Jimmy takes him to the Daily Planet where he introduces himself as Ufor, get it? And removes Lana Lang and Perry White's recent traumas, and Perry agrees to put him on the news. Superman Boy is, at this time, stopping various crimes and wondering what the hell is going on, especially after an awkward encounter with Lois, if you know what I mean. For no reason whatsoever, he manages to find his way back to 344 Clinton Street, Clark's apartment, where, thanks to Clark's scrapbook, Superman Boy manages to bring himself up to speed on current events. He returns to the office as Clark and is asked out on a date by Lana. The 80s thinks Superman Boy is sure going to take some getting used to. It's only the middle of his problems. Elsewhere, that UFO fella has donned some wellies, a tunic and a hoodie of questionable colour choice, and announces that tomorrow everybody will love him rather than Superman. I don't see how anyone could love him in that costume, (laughs) to be honest. The last page of this issue, lovely listener. What is he wearing? His hood is blue. And it looks like he's wearing some kind of helmet. Yeah, it's not a hood. It's like a helmet thing. But his tunic is yellow, as are his gloves, but his boots are black. But the Wellington boots that you wear on a farm, but they have a yellow trim. His body stocking is purple, but he's got a man bag and a wrestler's belt on. Yeah. And then a pouch on his chest where he keeps his loose change, presumably. <laughs> that is a dreadful costume, by any measure. It's pretty bad, yeah. It's pretty... And he didn't need one! Yeah. He didn't need one at all, did he? Up until this point in the story, he was doing just fine wearing questionable 80s clothes, but at least they were regular he clothes. Was the comforting cowboy. Yes, yes, he was. He was uh, Miley Cyrus's dad, wasn't he? <laughs> Actually, with, no. with his achy. All right, maybe not. <laughs> with his achy, breaky heart. With his achy, breaky heart. That nobody understands. No, I don't want to understand it at all. One of the issues with comics that we just accept is that the world is no different, even with super beings, aliens, and all manner of scientific theories, such as time travel being fact. Here we have a character, a man who is a big proponent of science and discovery, being able to hop back in time to check that a professor's theories on Neanderthal man are accurate. So here we have a man who could quite easily bring back documented proof on the creation of the universe, life on other planets, time travel, wormholes, and many, many aspects of history that puzzle us. One can argue that Superman providing evidence of these things doesn't even mean interfering in Earth history. It's just a case of Superman rocking up with pictures or videotape that provides evidence that would be irrefutable. It'd change the world. What if Superman went back in time and was Prometheus? Superman, with his heat vision... Gave us fire. Yeah. Wow. 
That would be awesome. Yeah. See, it is. It's one of those things that we just turn a complete blind eye to, isn't it? But yeah. a world with any kind of super being, let alone a superman, mm. would be a completely different world. Yeah. He, complete, he could prove or disprove any number of scientific theories really easily, couldn't he? Mm. He either takes an impartial observer back with him, or he just takes a video camera. Yeah. And he could... Any number of things would be completely different. So does that mean that the little short the comic short what would Superman do if he caught Hitler yeah is that in continuity then no but he, if he go, can go back in time mm, yeah alright I suppose so he could have gone back in time and held Hitler and Stalin up and said right you two fight it out yeah yeah that could totally so work. in the DC verse Superman stopped World War 2 yeah and they had a completely different world but then do you think he existed in the same universe then as um what's his first two the Inderglorious Bastards <laughs> where Hitler was killed Lieutenant Aldo Rain. Aldo Rain, that was the name I was looking for no I was just reading this and, and the whole premise for the reason why Superman's going back in time yeah. is to get evidence for something that happened in the Stone Age but is there not a lot of responsibility on him being able to time travel because you can just time travel and yet he does it just to check out some Neanderthals there's a lot of things he could do or wouldn't be able to do if he can just go back in time and that's a lot of responsibility on him that they just don't bother mentioning no they just kind of accept that Superman can go back in time and we never kind of really examine we the have no problems with that yeah. yeah I mean this is one of the things when, when people sulk about the ending of Superman the movie yeah they seem to forget Superman could do this kind of stuff in the comics all the time in 1978 yeah you want to go back in time no problem <laughs> couldn't he yeah so the end of the Superman the movie's never been a problem for me but it's when people complain about Superman 4 as well I mean there's a lot of reasons to complain about it right <laughs> I have a fondness for Superman 4 but when they say, well, he can't rid the world of nuclear weapons because we walk out of the cinema at the end of it and we still have nuclear weapons. But yeah. the last I checked, we walked out of the cinema after it and we didn't have a Superman. Yes. So I never really understood that argument as to why Superman can't do stuff in a story. It's not fiction if it affects the yeah. world yet. It's, yes, Superman hasn't rid the world <laughs> of nuclear weapons because he isn't real. Yeah. But in the confines of the story, he is real. Hmm. So examining the ramifications of if he did do something like that could be quite interesting. Mm. But, you know, whatever. Speaking of science, I absolutely loved that Curry Bates mentions that Superman can break the laws of physics vis-a-vis two objects occupying the same space at the same time. Mm. In a panel where Superman and Superboy are travelling in time and then switch minds. Yeah. <laughs> So in a panel that has these two ridiculous scientific <laughs> concepts, we're going to obey the laws of real science. <laughs> Which works. Yeah. Because if you remember in our Man of Steel episode a couple of weeks ago, mm. I mentioned my problem with the, the brain, Brainiac. Bizarro issue. Yeah. Was the whole... It was real lucky that that, you know, that thing it, they flew in her eyes was counteracted by Bizarro's thing. Here he is actually doing that. He's grounding the ridiculous science, the comic science. Yeah in real world science so they can't occupy the same space at the same time but they can travel in time because it's Superman and Superboy but also that panel shows that they are both occupying the same headspace at the same time uh, is that not just an artistic liberty to explain to the reader what is actually happening it does look like in that panel that their heads both occupy the same space at the same time well and the story kind of implies that that is what has happened. Because that's why they switch minds. Yes. Yeah. So... They fly at each other with such force that they go through each other, but their minds stay... Carry on going. Right. Is that how you saw it? Because I saw it as they butted each other, 
and then were thrown backwards. Yeah, and I the, saw that. The head butting was what transferred the mind thing. I got that. But the heads are in each other. In the the artistic interpretation of that event, yes. And if you're going to yeah. say like different times are at different frequencies, then they're kind of out of sync. Hmm. So that's why they can go through each other. But because of the switching minds, they then butt out. Yeah, what the time, the idea that you can only, you, two objects can occupy the same space at the same time, that has suddenly been broken yeah. by Superman and Superboy, and the laws of physics, the physics god is saying, ah, no, you can't do that, and he just splits them apart. Yes. Alright, okay. But that's what I meant about it. I liked that there was a real, mm. there was a real piece of science thrown in amidst the science fiction. Yes. The fictional aspect. I also like the panel where, where they hit each other and bounce back. Superman's the same, but Superboy just keeps on turling. Like, yeah. You can tell that Superboy's got more of an impact than Superman. Right, yeah. I hadn't noticed that, but you're absolutely right. From the art, Superman just kind of flies backwards. Yeah. But Superboy tumbles. Yeah. That's a nice touch, that. I hadn't noticed that, but you're absolutely right. I love the visual representation of them flying through the time stream on the top panel of page four. Mm. Superman's breaking the time barrier, and his background is all pinks and reds and stuff, because he's going back in time. Yeah. And Superboy's are green and black, because he's going forward in time. Mm. But again, the ramifications of him being able to do that yeah. were never really explored. You can go and visit the Legion in the 30th century, but what's to stop him? just having a look what happened in 1984 or whatever which he does yeah because there's so many things he could have known coming from the future that he could have then prevented yeah like you said there's an awful responsibility with him being able to do this mm. that he never they never really bothered exploring did they I suppose you could argue the same thing about Doctor Who the majority of the fun of this one despite having it to be continued in the middle of a page on page 6 yeah I've never read Superboy issue uh, 38 mm. so I don't know how that Oh, that panned out for Superboy. It, it might have been a bit more interesting than this one. Oh, no, man, this is great! It's We're reading a Superboy comic. I never thought I'd <laughs> say this, but maybe we should have covered the Superboy issue, which followed Superman, which might have been better. Well, this ends, This is a four-part story in Superman. Oh, okay. As this is, I love this story. No. It's one of my favourites. I just thought we're covering... Don't be dissing a mind-switching time, dude. I'm not, but we're following Superboy. Yeah, but it's in some... Mm, I see what you're saying. But it's still Superman's body. It's still Superboy. It's still Superboy's mind. Well, the fun of this, the fun of this story, does come from Superman Boy trying to adapt. I mean, the mind switches just to, to have fun yeah. with the story. So it doesn't... It didn't bother me mm. in the way that the Bizarro one did. This one, I just went with the premise of the story as you're supposed to do in a good science fiction tale yeah. to enjoy the story. Whereas the Bizarro one just made me keep scratching my head. Wait, what? Huh? What? Huh? Whereas this one, I went, oh, all right, okay, I'll go with that. Maybe it's five years of Quantum Leap. Because he has a Quantum Leap gag in this issue. He looks in the mirror yeah. and sees a face that is not his in the sense that he's got 10 years, 15 years worth of ageing to do. Mm. It's like you looking in the mirror and seeing yourself as a six-year-old. You would go, wait a minute, when did I have blonde hair? Yeah. So that was quite... I liked that. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, the guy on the ledge who's about to commit suicide, I thought was quite an interesting and <laughs> unintentionally funny scene. Yes. Because Jimmy Olsen just punches the guy in the face who's saying, oh, get on with it and jump. Yeah. Isn't that guy looking at a very large lawsuit in today's litigious age? Maybe. It was cathartic for Jimmy. Yeah. Well, that guy is now... 
going straight to his lawyer and reporting Jimmy Olsen <laughs> for punching him in the face without provocation, yes. which is what he's done. Yeah. And he's got a ton of witnesses. Yeah. And Jimmy Olsen's moderately famous because somebody actually says, Say, it's that hotshot young reporter, Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> like, well, like, we don't know. Yes. Maybe Jimmy just paid people off. <laughs> Superman boy catches a girder that just falls while they're making a building in downtown Metropolis. And I loved that he caught it. And he caught it in just the right moment that it didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. But they thought they were going to get hit by it, and then it just hovers in mid-air. Yeah. So they don't actually see it. But then he throws it back into place. Mm. Instead of carrying it up, you know, like a sensible person would do. He throws it, it lands perfectly, and then he gets up there just as it lands and, and nails it into place properly. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool, albeit a little bit stupid. Yeah. Because I thought, what if, what if something had gone wrong and he'd hit some of those men? But yeah. he's Superman. He, w- he would have flown away. Nobody saw him. Nobody saw <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think that was really cool. How oh, he just effortlessly just chucked it back into place. That was brilliant. Um, U4, oh dear God, is the guy who uh, rescues the man on the ledge who ultimately, I presume, is the hooded man at the end of the story. He's actually a lot scurrier in his cowboy shirt and jeans than yeah. he is in the silly outfit he wears on the last page. Hmm. Because there's more of an element of believability to him if he's dressed like a normal man, isn't there? Yeah. The minute he puts that ridiculous ensemble on at the end, you just, <laughs> you just don't take him seriously. Mm. But just here, just being a normal cowboy, he's more. Th- there's something more threatening about him. Yeah. And something slightly unnerving about him mm. that you don't get from the, the silly costume that he wears. Superman Boy notes that crime is significantly increased in the future. Which would make him question what he does if he's made no difference, presumably. Mm. I mean, if you lived in Metropolis, would you commit a crime in Metropolis? Probably not. If you were a criminal, wouldn't you live anywhere but Metropolis? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If I was a bank robber, I wouldn't be robbing banks in Gotham, Central City, or Metropolis. Yeah. Or New York. Anywhere else. (laughs) I'm fine. Nowhere else has superheroes. Mm Mm-hmm. Texas, no superheroes. I go rob banks there. They're all rich there as well, aren't they? Mm-hmm. That's where I'd live if I was the purple man. Okay, I'd, live, I'd live in Texas. Yeah, or someone else that's affluent. Where else is affluent? I, I don't know. Maybe Perth in Australia. Oh, they have man of bats in Texas, don't they? Do they? Yeah, maybe I won't go there. Well, somewhere near them. Australia doesn't have a superhero, does it? I go and live there. Yes, it does. It has the black, the black rider, black jet, black something. Okay, jet girl. No. That was Naomi Watt. She's Australian. She can be a superhero. She's fought King Kong. <laughs> anyway, should we get back to this comic? Okay. How, um, how did Super, Superboy know where he lived? That was dumb. Um, it was the only part of this story that I absolutely didn't go with okay. or buy. There's that, that bit that I feel myself being pulled towards ah, that yeah, apartment yeah. building down below, as if some sort of inerring homing instinct was guiding me along and that's just stupid <laughs> why couldn't he you know what would have been much better here if he had a wallet on him yeah he's got the cape pouch <laughs> yeah, yeah. at this point in time hadn't he would have been much better if in the cape pouch he'd had Clark Kent's clothes that had his wallet in with his driver's license yeah that could have been done does in he one have a driver's panel. license you'd still have to have ID don't you I guess so whether it was a driver's license or something he would have identification on him yeah that would say where he lived and it still would have been one panel. 
that he would have gone, ah, I found my cl- clothes in my cape pouch and that's told me my address, 344 Clinton. Yeah. This was just silly. Mm. In a way that I was kind of like, no, that's a little bit too but silly. But then, he also me. lives in an apartment complex. He does. How does he know which apartment he lives in? That's also a good point. <laughs> Whereas on the ID, it would have said apartment 4B, yeah. 344 Clinton Street. See, our explanation works much better mm. than this particular... Why are we not writing comments? Why are we not writing... I mean, and, see, the, and with every other aspect of this story, I can go with that. I can accept it, because that's part of the fun of the story. Yeah. Superboy has to exist in Superman's world. There is, there's also a reason behind it that makes sense, regardless of... Yeah, re- regard, regardless of science, Yes. it still works, doesn't it? But that I just didn't buy that bit. You know when there's little moments in a science fiction thing where otherwise you accept what's going on? Yeah, yeah. But there's these little things that you go, no, I don't buy that. <laughs> That's just a little bit too stupid. Uh, Lois Lane is the target. I love that panel, top of page 13. I love that panel on the top of page 13 of Superman just lounging around at home. Yeah. Reading his scrapbook. I don't know why I like that panel. I just like the idea that Superman lounges. Because he's not got changed, does he? No. He stayed in his Superman costume. I thought that was quite cool. Lois is the target of a purse-snatching or necklace-snatching. And is more than capable of kicking ass on her own, which I did like. I like that a lot. But what I especially liked was that she instantly knew something was wrong with Superman. Yeah. That was good. That there was none of this, she didn't notice drivel. I mean, it does beg the question why she's never noticed that he's Clark Kent then. Yeah, yeah. If she can instantly spot that there's something a bit wrong with him here because he's acting like a 16-year-old boy. Mm. But I thought that was really clever. I don't recall if Superman was dating Lois at this point because Lana seems to have the hots for Clark, which would have made for an interesting double date. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Lois and Clark and Lana and... Lois and Superman and Lana and Clark. Maybe he'd have to get one of the robots. The robo-Superman. He'd have to get one of his robots from the Fortress. yeah. Yeah, can you imagine if that ended up getting hot and heavy and it was the robot? The robot. Is it fully functional? Well, it would either be really bad or really good. (laughs) Depending on your point of view. (laughs) Depending on how detailed Superman's robots are. Yeah, I did like that there's some commentary on the Superman comic status quo over the time. God, we just said the word status quo. (laughs) That Superman boy notes that Jonathan would be a tad annoyed that Clark is a minor celebrity, given that Jonathan was always the advocate of Clark maintaining a low profile. Mm. So I, I liked that. I thought that was really quite clever. Because it is kind of pointing out that it's a little bit dumb that Superman, in the guise of Clark Kent, is on TV every night at six o'clock. Yeah. And people are going, he looks a little bit familiar. But then you just kind of go with the secret identity stuff, don't you? What did you think of this one? I... Didn't like it. Did you not? No. Oh, man. You have so been surprising me. <laughs> in these uh, these 80s ones. Why did you not like it? I just didn't... I don't care about Superboy. And this issue is about Superboy. See... And it's about how Superboy sees Superman. And there's so many things like... Why would Superboy just read about what he's going to do in the future? Because, once again, it's a time travel thing where there's no repercussions or no responsibility see I would imagine like I say I've never read it that the Superboy issue is a lot more emotional because it's yeah. Superman getting to visit Jonathan and Martha again yeah. and they're dead 
at this point mm. in this continuity. So maybe I should dig out a copy of Superboy 38 from somewhere. If you've got one, lovely listener, send it my way. Yeah. And uh, I'll have a read of it and maybe we'll cover the entire story. Yeah. Because this is a four-part story. It's kind of like the the Superman and what Superboy must be like are two sides of the same coin. Where this is uh, a chance to have Superboy have silly Superman antics. Yeah. The flip side of this story is it's a chance for a, a personal Superman story. Mm, see, despite being pretty much the creative team that produced the last week's issue, which I didn't particularly much of, did I? I didn't think it was bad, but I thought this was a more interesting story. It's still plot-heavy. Yeah. Because that's what DC was at the time, very plot-driven, because apparently that's the way Julius Schwartz liked it. But this one, despite being pretty high concept, has many great character moments that, that sold it. I mean, you're looking at this now at five years of Quantum Leap that did this every week. Yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer's done this story. Data in Star Trek's done this. You could probably think of any number of TV shows that have done body swapping. Farscape yeah. did it rather brilliantly. Farscape did it. So, But at the time, this was high concept. I mean, we've already said that it's pretty weak tea that Superman Boy just finds 344 Clinton. But I thought everything else he was just a joy. From Superman Boy trying to act mature and Lois seen right through it, to him trying to flirt with Lana hmm. with corny dialogue that, you know, she would be like, what's he trying to do? Yeah. Because she points that out, and she she thinks he's been deliberately hmm. corny. To his dialogue with the police, some of the scenes with the mind switch hero were really a lot of fun. You four, he seemed like a pretty weak villain, didn't he? Kind of like Cybok from Star Trek. I need yeah. my pain. I did like the the bit where he's on the roof with the guy, though. Yeah, where he's talking him down. Yeah, the, the eyes down, barrel of the gun approach to it. Yeah, I mean, it, he's not the focus of the issue. So he was okay as a bad guy, and I am interested in seeing where he goes from here. It, he's, the bad guy's... The, the plot element here is Superboy trying to adapt to being Superman. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a lot of fun, for the most part. Specific of the time moments concerned the Kents living in a normal house and running a general store rather than being farmers, which I think was a development specific to the Bronze Age, and all the WGBS stuff with Clark being the newscaster and journalist. The emphasis on the Clark Kent aspect of his life elevates this for me much more, much higher, sorry, than the issue we covered last week. And it's interesting that in three years hence, this kind of tale just couldn't happen. Mm. In post-crisis, they couldn't do this kind of story anymore. Superboy didn't exist. Superman couldn't travel in time anymore. So it did kind of prove there was still life in this era. It being the 1980s, there's a couple of adverts. Atari. Wow. Look at that joystick, proper Atari joystick with the red button. Who didn't have one of them? (laughs) Well, you didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, Magnum PI. The 308 GTS Ferrari is... um, I presume that's a model kit. Yeah, well, it's Ravel. That you can buy, yeah, it's a Ravel model kit. Well done. I don't know what all that stuff is. Follow like Cthulhu? I don't think it's Cthulhu, it's... Dungeons and Dragons? Dungeons of Dread, Return to Brookmere. Yeah, it's Dungeons and Dragons, you're absolutely right. Never got into Dungeons and Dragons. Did you? Barely. A little bit. You do a little of role-playing stuff, don't you? A little bit. Never into that. Sergeant Rock playsets! Wow, they're pretty cool. I didn't know there was any Sergeant Rock player sets. Excellent Meanwhile column by Dick Giordano. I always liked his Meanwhile columns. And a two-page letters page. Sadly, Todd McFarlane not writing this week. 
Well, I was saddened by it. <laughs> you, <laughs> Wait, didn't, you? you didn't seem overly concerned <laughs> that Todd McFarlane didn't write in this week. For the Batman, this was a big year. Although not as big as 1989, obviously. Whilst the Batman title alternated with detective comics to make it a bi-weekly strip, writer Jerry Conway added subplots that he skillfully interwove between each comic. But on the downside, it was the beginning of something that by the 90s would become normal. The idea that to follow a single storyline you had to read comics you may not normally buy. Batman was the better title, featuring stunning covers, some designed by Ed Hannigan, and incredibly underrated art by Don Newton. Conway would go from strength to strength this year, creating Killer Croc, and by year's end, a new Robin. The cover to Batman issue 356 is a comics staple, reflected in somebody's spectacles to Batman's fight. The man is Hugo Strange, the technique familiar to both Batman fans and Spider-Man fans. It's still a great cover, though, by Hannigan and Dick Giordano. Struggle all you want, Batman, Strange cries. You can never defeat yourself. You like that one? Yeah. And it's great. It contradicts the uh, story inside a little well, bit. Well, the cover doesn't have to be a true reflection on the story inside. And it yeah. also doesn't have to tell you the entire story. And it doesn't, no, because that makes it look like Hugo Strange has pitched Batman versus Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not how the story would play out, is no. it? But it's a good cover, though. Mm-hmm. Ed Hannigan delivered some truly fantastic covers during the early 1980s. The Double Life of Hugo Strange was written by Jerry Conway with art by Don Newton and Dick Giordano. A strange man dons the cape and cowl of the Batman and admires himself in the mirror. The clothes do make the man, the stranger quips as Alfred and Dick Grayson laugh in the background. Sitting by the dock of the bay, Bruce and Vicky Vale enjoy a moonlight smooch, but Vicky is called away for a meeting. Bruce wonders if he should give Catwoman a booty call, but he's gassed in his car and falls unconscious. He wakes up at Wayne Manor, a little dazed, but okay. What's not okay is Alfred trying to kill him. He's no real match for Bruce, who punches him stone dead. Shocked by his actions, Bruce reels, but is even more surprised when Alfred walks in through the door. Over at Wayne Manor... Wait a minute, are we at Wayne Manor? Apparently not, as Vicky arrives to learn that Bruce isn't there. She assumes he's hit up another woman for a late date and leaves, but Alfred and Dick are concerned. If Bruce had run into something requiring the attention of Batman, he'd have let them know Vicky was coming. They activate the homing beacon, but Bruce, wherever he is, is taking a shower. He is attacked prison-style by Dick Grayson, and Bruce hurls Dick into the mirror, killing him. Dazed and confused, Bruce stumbles out of the shower room, straight into... Dick... Thinking he's cracking up, Bruce turns to leave and is attacked again by Dick too. Bruce hurls him down the stairs and, to his surprise, Dick's head falls off. It all becomes clear and Bruce heads to the cave where the architect of this grand scheme awaits him. Hugo Strange, resplendent in his own Batman costume and shorn of his beard. After monologuing about how he escaped death, they get into the fight scene we've all been waiting for. Outside, Robin, having traced the homing beacon, arrives and witnesses the struggle. He has no problem deducing who is who, as Bruce would never ask him to kill anyone, and he punches Strange's lights out. Strange heads straight to his supercomputer and monologues a little bit more, before blowing up his duplicate of Wayne Manor. Is everybody dead? Oh no! Tune in tomorrow night. Same bell. No, we don't have to do any of that, because at the real Wayne Manor, Strange's mandroid of Bruce is about to kill Alfred when Batman stops him. 
Apparently, they ran out of the building before it blew, and Strange was too short-sighted to notice. (laughs) And I really must commend you. I went through that synopsis saying lots of things like, Bruce looks at his dick, and you didn't (laughs) laugh once. So well done. I applaud you for being able to keep a straight face during a synopsis that had a lot of dick. (laughs) Hey, if DC Comics can do this joke now, we can. Okay. okay. Do, do they do this joke now? Yeah, when the new Nightwing title was promoted with the log line, you don't know Dick. Right, okay. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Uh, that was the poster. Yeah, okay. And I was a bit... I don't know if that's <laughs> terribly appropriate. But hey, what do I know? Maybe the kids today like that kind of thing. Go on. Well, you know what I like about this first page? The first page. The very first page. The very page. first page. Looking at the, the panels of the bat top... Yes. That, look at look at the top of that. It's a jumper. Yeah. The bat outfit is a woolly jumper. Well, it's cold in Gotham City, dude. You okay? Yeah. And maybe it's stitched like that to hide the Kevlar. Could be. That he has in the suit. Or is that just a modern invention? Maybe, oh, yeah. This Batman was so good. He didn't, he didn't need ke- yeah. no Kevlar. That's funny. I like that opening panel. Because mm. you're led to believe it's, it's Bruce getting dressed. Yeah. And then we get to the next page and it's Hugo Strange wearing the Batman outfit with a beard. And Batman looks really weird with a beard. Yeah. Doesn't he? That cowl does not suit a beard. Yes. Especially, he's got one of those chin-stroking open university type beards as well, hasn't he? <laughs> like he should be lecturing you on quantum physics yeah. at six o'clock in the morning on BBC Two. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It is quite off-putting. Uh, Gotham, according to the caption box on page three... Is America's most romantic city? Yeah. Really? I I didn't get that either. Gotham is America's most romantic city? Maybe romance was at an all-time low. <laughs> I was just going to say, what does that say about the other country, <laughs> the other cities in the country? Yeah. The city where you can go to be killed by a man in clown face, or a bizarre quack 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 penguin type figure, or you know, be crushed by a riddle. Yeah. That if you don't answer, you get shot in the head. This is America's most romantic setting. At least the Joker <laughs> hits Harley where you won't be able to see the bruises. That's true, but there isn't a Harley Quinn yet. Uh, yeah, they say. Was Gotham a different place in the 80s? Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe it wasn't Detroit. <laughs> maybe it's not what it is today. Yeah, yeah. Is that what you're trying to say? Why does Vicky have a meeting this late at night? She says she's been busy with work, doesn't she? She does. And then she says, I've got to be at a special budget meeting in 15 minutes. Late at night. You know, maybe picture news doesn't shut. I don't know. I like that last panel of Bruce. What? I, I just like it because I like his, his, his pose. His body language. Yes. I am getting laid tonight. <laughs> well, maybe he was. I'll leave you later for a nightcap. So, yeah, he is kind of counting yeah. chickens there, <laughs> isn't he? Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Bruce used to head up the Wayne Foundation. It actually says in a thought balloon here. In the last issue we read, he was running it. Mm. So maybe there's been a minor change over the past two years that we uh, we weren't aware of. Because he's back at Wayne Manor. Was he back at Wayne Manor last issue? No. Was he still living in the penthouse? He was, wasn't he? Because the sunlight glanced off his eyes, didn't he? So they're slowly moving him back to the, the regular... I don't want to say status quo again. <laughs> Bruce is dating both Selena and Vicky Vale. Was that what we were to imply from reading this? Well, maybe when he's Bruce, he's he's on Vicky Vale, and then when he's Batman, it's Selena Carr. 
And Clark is seeing both Lois and Lana? No, no, Superman is seeing Lois and, and Clark, Clark is seeing Lana. Lana. What's in the water in the DC universe? <laughs> when, you know, secret identities. I mean, I can buy Bruce Wayne doing it because he's rich enough to afford two women. Yeah. And Superman's fast enough to afford two women. Yeah. So, you know... But it seemed a bit dubious to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's kind of thinking about Selena Kyle while he's snogging Vicky Vale. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know quite what to make about that, <laughs> to be honest. But, you know. As with the stories last week, I can't help but think that the villain's reveal could have been kept from the reader. Mm. I mean, granted, the title of the story has the villain's name in it, and the cover has him on it, so it's not like it was a secret. But going straight from Bruce Wayne at Wayne Manor in speech marks to Vicky arriving at the real Wayne Manor and Bruce not being there could have been a lovely little tantalising mystery that I think Conway could have milked a little bit more. If they'd have cut the scene short to Vicky Vale leaving rather than pad it out and reveal to us that that's the real yeah. people. We could have been in the position as readers as Dick and Alfred are. Yeah. Like, where is he? what the hell is going on? And we would have been, but he's at Wayne Manor, what's happening? Yeah. By tipping the hand there... With on page seven where Hugo Strange dressed as Batman is watching him. Hmm. I think they could have kept that out a little bit. Even with the even though we know who the villain is, yeah. we would still have been in the dark as to where Bruce was. Do you get what I mean? Oh. Structurally, you could have excised that page. Even with the reveal of the villain, you could have still cut short the bits with Alfred yeah. and Dick in it, so it could just be Everything is set in the same way, man. Or it's not, but we don't know which is yeah, which. Yeah, that's what I'm saying to you. And it could Knowing be. that Hugo Strange is the bad guy, you still could have had that whole mystery. Yeah. This story could have played out as a much bigger mystery. Because we, as the reader, now know everything that's going on by page seven. Yeah. Whereas if they'd excised that little bit, yes, we know that Hugo's the villain, mm. but we wouldn't have known where Bruce was. We'd have been as in the dark as Bruce is. Yeah. We'd have been, but he's at Wayne Manor. What's going on? And then they could have revealed that later on, like on page 14. Yeah. Would have been... I think that would have been structurally more interesting. That the reader would have been in the dark just as Bruce Wayne was. Mm. It is what it is, isn't it? Yeah. You know. I made my inner 14-year-old titter, and I use the word titter deliberately because it makes Michael laugh, to have naked Bruce Wayne say, Dick... Whilst hurling Robin across the room. I presume this naked fight scene has led to many a shipper fanfic. Yeah. One would have thought. Although I'm never really comfortable with that because Dick's Bruce's son. Yeah. And I think that that's... I always think that's... Because it's like in Supernatural when they did that joke about... They explained to Dean what shipping was. Yeah. And they said, yeah, yeah, between you and Sam. And he's like, they do know we're brothers, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it always, always strikes me as a bit like that, to be honest with you. Although silliness aside... I thought this scene was actually really well done. Because mm. taking somebody in a shower adds a level of vulnerability to them. Yeah. So it made sense that Robin would try and attack Bruce this way. Basically, he tries to do a prison killing, doesn't he? Mm. He's got some piano wire and he tries to throttle him in the shower. Yeah. So it's I'm... a good scene that inadvertently made me laugh because my, my inner 14-year-old is never that far away. <laughs> and, then, and then Bruce brutally murders and Dick Grayson. Bruce, 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 Bruce brutally murders him, yeah. As he, and he's already killed Alfred. Yeah. So he's going two for two. Isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so subconsciously, Bruce Wayne wants to kill Alfred and Dick Grayson, yeah. and he wants to do two women at the same time. 
Yeah. What does this issue say about his <laughs> mental state? <laughs> Saying a lot about our hero Batman. Uh, how Hugo Strange survived the events of I Am the Batman by Engelhart and Rogers doesn't really bear much scrutiny, does it? It relies on the barrel being airtight and having enough air for Hugo to live off whilst given that he clearly states, once I was safely away, it relies on Hugo knowing where the current would take him, how deep he'd end up, and where to surface. And if we recall that story, Boss Thorne's men had given him quite a beating. Hmm. So he wasn't really in tip-top shape. But, you know, whatever. It doesn't contradict that story, so we can live with it. Robin unhesitatingly knows which is the real Batman. Which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And the full page splash on page 19 of the Batman fighting the Batman is really cool. Mm. But I thought the actual denouement was a tad weak. Yeah. A good issue, fun in its own way, with stellar art. There's still a fair few story elements that are glossed over to make it work, but it just about does. Batman is back in the manor and the Batcave after last issue, where he was in the penthouse, establishing that DC were moving Batman back to the commonly accepted version of the character after over a decade of the newer version. Other than that, this is pretty typical of the time. Dick is at home, presumably for a break, or maybe just visiting, but Batman is now pretty entrenched in what he is and isn't, and this is no different. Batman and Robin just letting Hugo blow himself up seemed a bit odd, as is the fact that there is a, a life-size replica of Wayne Manor just down the road from Wayne Manor yeah. that nobody seems to care about has just blown up. That didn't seem to bother anyone at all. Uh, but we've got to remember this was the era where Batman seemingly had no problem with the bad guys killing themselves, even if he wouldn't actually kill them himself. Yeah. He had no problem if they died in the process of what they were doing, did he? Because we've mentioned that before. Resurrecting Hugo Strange just to kill him again seems a little bit odd, and his plan is okay, but seemingly fraught with problems. Like, why build a fake manor and cave so close to the re one? Hell, why build a fake one at all? He'd planned on killing Alfred and Dick at the end of this, hadn't he? Yeah. So why not just kill them first and take over the real manor? Would that not make more sense as a supervillain plot? That'd be harder. That requires more work. Not what than building a life-size Wayne Manor complete with cave? Yeah. Really? How does he know how it's furnished as well? See? <laughs> this is, it's, you know, it would have made much more sense to just kill Alfred and Dick Grayson first. Yeah. And have Bruce come home to the real Wayne Manor. There wouldn't have been any need to gas him then either. He doesn't need to kill him, I guess. Just maybe yeah. tie him up. I'm, I'm, I'm not having that taking over the real Wayne Manor is more difficult than building a life-size replica. Well, he didn't do it himself. He had lackeys, of course. Do you think he did? Yeah. He had hourly paid builders in who took breaks every 15 minutes. <laughs> so this plot has actually took years. Yes. <laughs> All right, little niggles like that, plus the fact that Hugo is so blind without his specs he couldn't see Batman and Robin were no longer there. But he can fight him with no problems. Maybe there's contacts in the cowl. Oh, right. Okay. And how quickly did Batman and Robin get out of the cave, out of the house, and a suitable distance away so as to not get caught in that explosion? Because that's a pretty big explosion from the exterior. Yeah. Isn't it? Batman and Robin covered some serious ground in a very short amount of time, though. Unless they escaped through the cave. That's possible. Still a big explosion, though. But is it a fake cave if you had to build it? And I suppose if they escaped through the cave, they're underground, and he's only blown up the manor. Yeah. Although that doesn't work, because then, obviously, he planned on everything blowing up, hadn't he? Yeah. Anyway. There's a, there's a lot of problems with this when you start thinking about it, aren't there? There is, yeah. 
I mean, you know, it's a decent read, but more an artistic achievement than a storytelling one because the art by Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala is simply magnificent, even though Alfredo Alcala didn't ink this one. Well done, Andrew. See, Giordano inked it. But Don Newton's fantastic. Pay attention to me. He is. He's great. Did you like that one? What did you think of that one? I really liked that one. Did you? It was fun. Yes. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Even though we're now sat here going, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it was It was kind of similar to the recent Snyder Capullo one where he's he's going crazy in the cave. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there were similarities, weren't there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. The Amazing Spider-Man had a pretty good 1983. Kicking off the year, he fought the newly evolved Tarantula, Mary Jane Watson re-entered his life, and the gang war between Dr. Octopus and the Owl exploded, nearly causing the death of the Black Cat, at this point Spider-Man's girlfriend. I say Spider-Man as she has no idea who he really is, which presumably was a bit kinky. The aforementioned occurred in Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man Amazing Sister title, and one that never really took off on its own merits until this run by Bill Mantler. Marvel Tales was at the peak of the Lee Ditko reprints, and even Marvel Team-Up was pretty good. The turbulent life of Peter Parker was still a draw for many, but there was little overexposure. Amazing had an annual, and there was an appearance in Marvel Fanfare, and a guest spot in a two-part Avengers story written by Roger Stern. But on the whole, Spider-Man kept to himself. Sadly, all things must pass, and Roger Stern left Amazing Spider-Man with issue 250 at the end of the year, and Bill Mantlo left Peter Parker shortly into 1984. The Amazing Spider-Man issue 240, cover dated May 1983, has a cover by John Romita Jr. and Bob Layton. I think it's absolutely stunning. The vulture hovers large and in charge in the background as Spider-Man swings up front. The sun shines in the background. Despite being rather minimalist, there is no bad here. Everyone looks on model yet updated and I think it's simply glorious. Disagree with me then? I don't disagree. I think the vulture looks very Ditko-esque. Never wrong with that. But... The Spider-Man looks very Romita-esque. I'm nothing wrong with that either. Best of both worlds. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice mix of the two. It is. I think it's a glorious cover. I think it's absolutely fantastic. The same artists handled the interior. Roger Stern scripted a story called Wings of Vengeance. Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. The Vulture, is living high on the hog in a retirement village in the southwest where the police don't even suspect he's located. And why should they? Keeping a low profile, doing jobs in secret, the Vulture has managed to achieve the high life, and even that blasted wall crawler can't force him back to New York. Leafing through his morning copy of the Daily Bugle, however, one name does strike at the heart of the Vulture. Bestman Electronics. His day ruined, his mood darkened. Mr. Toombs books the first flight back to New York. In that same Big Apple, Peter Parker awakens from a nightmare that also serves to sum up recent events in his life. Realising he slept the better part of the day away, he decides to check up on Aunt May and her new boyfriend Nathan Lebensky in Queens, because it is time for some pie. The Vulture has arrived in New York and flies to Columbus Circle, where Bestman Electronics are holding an expo. Even more angered now, the Vulture vows to make Gregory Bestman wish he'd never been born. At May's, Nathan shows off his new cable hookup, which picks up public access. They tune in at just the right time to see a live broadcast from the expo when a startled cameraman captures the Vulture on film. Peter makes a quick exit and double times it to the convention centre as Spider-Man. Inside, the Vulture is trashing the joint, demanding to know where Bestman is. Spider-Man, by via arrangement with the police, gains entrance and tackles the Vulture, but his cockiness allows the Vulture to gain the upper hand. Instead of tackling Spidey outright, the Vulture uses the equipment in the expo to create a diversion so he can retreat and plan anew. He sets off a direct current generator that keeps Spider-Man on the hop, but as the Vulture is about to flee, he spies Gregory Bestman. 
Spider-Man tries to avoid the lightning shocks and prevent the vulture grabbing Bestman, but when he alights upon a smooth surface for but a second, disaster strikes, and the random lightning hits him in the split second he is grounded. He falls. Spider-Man, groggy and verging on unconsciousness, grabs for the vulture, who kicks him in the head, and then Bestman, who does likewise. Spider-Man blacks out before falling 25 feet to the floor, without a knowledge of how to fall such a distance can kill a man. What chance then? An unconscious man. Spider-Man hits with a sickening thud. It will be minutes before anyone can get to the crumpled form lying immobile in the centre of the convention hall. Far too many minutes. Excellent splash page, which is odd, given that it is nothing but a liver-spotted hand reaching for a newspaper. Mm. I love that the credits for the paper uh, for the comic are all over the newspapers. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Color section by Bob Sharon, shooter indicted, roughhouse Ramita Junior to beat babyface Bob Layton. Mm. That was really cool. I read through the entire issue th- going with the credits. Did you not notice them? No, I oh, that's really clever. Isn't I, went, it? I went back and saw them. It's great. Yeah. Oh, that's a really clever way of doing it because they're not in your face either. No, very, 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 very good. Uh, there's also references to the events of Peter Parker: The Spectacular Spider-Man. Mm. So bringing you up to speed in what's going on in the other title. The Vulture's also remarkably smart here. How many times have we thought that these bad guys just get the hell out of New York or Gotham or Metropolis? We said it earlier this show, didn't we? Yeah. Just move away to somewhere and keep a low profile, somewhere that doesn't have a superhero. You know, I'd, I'd be living somewhere affluent and quiet and just stealing what I needed subtly without attracting attention to myself. Well, as much as you couldn't attract attention to yourself if you had purple skin. <laughs> I mean, that would be a minor drawback, but, you know, good idea. There are some brilliant artistic touches throughout this comic. Um, especially over the pages where Peter has a nightmare. Firstly, the blinds reflected on the floor on the final panel of page three. I think such an easy technique, but so effective to show the sun coming through the the uh, the window to tell you that it's much later on in the morning than Peter thinks it is. And then the actual lack of backgrounds and the surrealism of the two-page dream sequence, which I just thought was stunning. Mm. thought that was absolutely beautiful two-page splash. Again, bringing you up to speed on what's going on with the va- the owl, sorry, and Dr. Octopus and Black Cat and Hobgoblin and Gladiator. Brilliant stuff. Did you like that? As yeah. an art boy. I thought it was great. I love the way it doesn't have a panel border as well, mm. apart from on the bits where Peter's asleep, so his dream doesn't have panel borders. Because, you know, there are no confines to dreams. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I don't know if that was deliberate, but I thought it was pretty damn cool touch if it wasn't. Stern's dialogue is incredibly natural and real throughout the issue. And the page where Peter swings by the general tectonics lab where he was bitten and then past Midtown High is wonderfully evocative without feeling like it was shoehorned in. Nice way to recap his origin as well, without it being one of those, I will recap my origin now. Love the panel of him changing, where he's running across the rooftop. Love him jumping over himself yeah. to take his pants off, which I thought was really brilliant. I loved the Lieutenant Keating scene. In fact, you know, everything I have to say about this issue should just be repetitive. It's an absolutely top-notch issue. Stern 
at the peak of his powers manages to weave characterization, action, drama and humour into a stark tale of revenge. We have no idea why the Vulture wants Gregory Bessman, only that whatever it is, it's an all-consuming rage that has brought him out of his comfy retirement. The art is gorgeous, Ramita Jr. and Leighton making an excellent team. And if this isn't one of Spider-Man's best ever issues in one of his best ever years of publication, it's only because the other issues published this year were just so strong. Don't you dare tell me you didn't like this one. <laughs> you are, aren't you? That's what you're going to say. I didn't like it. Oh, like... man! No, no, no. I didn't not like it because <laughs> I thought there was nothing wrong with it. It's just, it suffers the same problem I have with every other Spider-Man issue. From this time period. Yeah, it didn't hook me because I didn't feel that connection which you kind of have to have to Spider-Man. Why not? The only Spider-Man I've enjoyed is from Straczynski onwards. That's because I've read it almost ongoingly from Straczynski onwards. This was fantastic! I'm not saying I had a problem with it. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying I did not have that connection to it. See if you'd have grown up reading it. Yeah. You're saying. I have more of a connection to Straczynski onwards and Dan Slott. Because that's what I That's the one you're reading. Yeah. Well, you were born in 95, so really you should have grown up with the Clone Saga, did. Well, I should have. Or maybe <laughs> your parenting was so good. <laughs> I kept you away from it. Yeah. <laughs> I let you read Preacher, <laughs> but I kept you away from the That's Clone Saga. <laughs> Fair enough. The Uncanny X-Men had lost Dave Cockrum for a second time, which was rather curlous of it, and welcomed artist Paul Smith. Smith's clean style was a departure from Cockrum and Byrne, but it was under his pencils that the X-Men started to become the sales juggernaut it would become throughout the 80s and 90s. The X-Men, under the scripting talents of Chris Claremont, would go from strength to strength in 1983, with the one regular title spawning two new ongoing series, The New Mutants and spin-off Alpha Flight, both of which followed hot on the heels of the solo Wolverine 4-issue miniseries. Wolverine would also start making guest appearances in other titles, including a guest shot in Daredevil. By the end of the year, Smith would be gone to be replaced by John Romita Jr., but the X-Men would have a reprint series, X-Men Classics, and another mini, X-Men vs. Micronauts. The mutant franchise was just beginning. The cover to Uncanny X-Men issue 168 is cover dated April 93 and features a cover by Smith of Kitty Pride being backed against a wall, her tunic torn, her hair unkempt, her brow sweaty. A single tear falls from her cheek and a bruise is on her forehead. What? How? Why? It's exactly what you want from a cover. You want to know what the hell is going on. Or are you going to say it's simple? No, I like it. Because it's Paul Smith, so it is simple. Because that's what his art was, wasn't it? I love Paul Smith stuff. Do you not like it? No. <laughs> me, why? What do you not like about it? It's... I don't want to say it's bad. Because it, it, it clearly isn't. But it's not good. What's not good about it? His characters and his faces are bad. They're wide and open and expressive and great. And what do you mean bad? They're always off and different. These characters hardly look the same. No, I don't agree with that I, at all. My main problem, the the person I have the most problem is, is probably um, Nightcrawler or Wolverine. No. I, I'm just, no, I'm not feeling it. Oh, man. Waringo has a similar style, which is good. Yeah. Because his style 
he's good at what he does, whereas this art isn't good at what it's doing. Oh, man. I suppose we've got to get through the synopsis then. <laughs> Professor Xavier is a jerk, written by Clermont, penciled by Smith, inked by Bob Wyasek. The X-Men are abuzz with the news that Kitty Pride has been demoted to the trainee team, the New Mutants. Some, like Wolverine, feel the decision is unjust. Others, like Nightcrawler, feel that Kitty is still a child and should be protected. With Kitty greatly annoyed by the decision, her dance teacher tells her to present her case to Charles Xavier. He may change his mind. In the danger room, Xavier finds his new cloned body failing him with no clear reason why. He fears his legs failing is psychosomatic, and that he must choose between his legs and his usefulness to the X-Men. Lilandra, his lover and empress to the Shi'ar, is returning to retake her throne from her sister, Deathbird, and she would love it dearly if Charles joined her. Whilst all this is occurring, alien eyes watch. Over the next few days, Kitty tries everything from logic to passion to flattery, none of which works. Kitty laments that she'll be held back with the ex-babies until she's ancient. She attempts to catch up on her studies, but spots an anomaly on the computer. Whoever is in the maintenance tunnels isn't registering as an X-Man. She dons her costume, the old one, and heads down there where she discovers Lockheed, the dragon alien thing she met on another planet. The X-Men get around. Lockheed's not the problem, though. The Sidrian Hunters are. A nest must have been born the last time they were here, and it's just hatched. Kitty flees, but the hunter knocks her over. Lockheed bails her out with fiery breath, a vulnerability, apparently, and Kitty manages to stay one step ahead, taking out two of the hunters when a third catches her on a worse. Fortunately, Colossus arrives, blocks the beam with his steel body, and punches the hunter's lights clean out. Finding the nest isn't a problem either, as Lockheed has set fire to it. With all well, Xavier notes that he's never actually seen Kitty in action, and impressed, he agrees to reinstate her to the X-Men on a trial basis. Uh, my memory may be cheating, but I'm pretty sure this was the first American X-Men comic I ever picked up. And I would read it right through the Smith run and into the John Jr. stuff, and then dropped it around issue 210 for some reason. That was my X-Men phase. The splash page is one of the most famous in X-Men lore, Kitty Pride turning straight towards the audience, pointing at us and saying Professor Xavier is a jerk. Mm. It's quite a famous panel, isn't it? It is. It was in Astonishing X-Men as well. Oh, was the, it? The yeah, just we offered it, yeah. Homaged, I suppose. Wolverine and Nightcrawler's conversation about the merits of Kitty being an X-Men are well thought out. Mm-hmm. Both points of view are present, so fair enough. I like the foreshadowing of Lockheed at the top of the page back yeah because the page is outnumbered right at the top yeah you get the feeling Lockheed is being presented as the bad guy yeah and that turns out to be a red herring doesn't it Mm -hmm. which I thought was quite neat it also follows on from last week yeah when you were like so where does Lockheed come from it doesn't tell us it doesn't tell us where he came from but we're told anyway so it's it's all good I thought it was quite neat that uh, that inadvertently tied into last we've no theme this week they're not all tired (laughs) Lilandra returning to her empire is a subplot this is a Chris Claremont X-Men book so there's a lot of them Yeah, there's an awful lot of subplots it's easy to see why female readers fell for the X-Men under Claremont's run all the women in this comic are interesting characters and drawn to look like real people there's no stupid sexualised costume in fact only Kitty and Nightcrawler were a costume in this issue 
There's a scene where Storm strips nude to appreciate nature, but this was an established part of her character at this point, and it's not in any way sensationalised. It also introduces another subplot about Storm being rejected by the elements, mm. which I presume would play out over the next 16 years. Yeah. Or however long Chris Clermont has yet. Scott Summers is off walking the earth to reconnect after discovering he has a family. He hooks up with an old girlfriend, but is thrown for a loop when he's introduced to a woman who looks exactly like Jean Grey, which is another subplot. Okay. Again, as we point out... There are lots of There's lots of them. I do like the piece before that of um, the montages of Kitty Pride and Prasperx area. Oh, yeah, where she's trying flattery and yeah. passion and then cooperation and then just logically beating him at chess which I quite like mm. Kitty Pride has beat Professor Xavier at chess look at Charles's first though yeah he's like wait a minute how did that happen that is uh, I don't see how you can complain about this art I really don't I'm flabbergasted it's his faces I think the, I love his faces I think they're just expressive without being too many lines I think it's I think it's really quite stunning to be honest with you. The posters on the wall in Kitty's room include Tom Selleck as Magnum PI, a funny dragon calendar, Felix the Cat, and a sign that states the Legion eats quiche. What does that mean? Is that a dig at the Legion of Superheroes? Could be. Could be. She also has a stuffed Winnie the Pooh. Okay. Which I thought was quite neat. I like um the panel of Nightcrawler. With the little Teddy Nightcrawlers from the story. Yeah, from the one we covered last time. Yeah. Kitty's Fairy Tale. Kind of coincidentally, I was reading an essay today on the Manara Spider Woman variant cover. Oh, yeah? And he used that exact panel. Did he? As an argument for men being drawn in provocative poses. With Bamf covering Nightcrawlers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see his point. Nightcrawler is wearing a skin-tight outfit, but... And, you know, in context, that's exactly what he's trying to do. Yeah, he's trying to seduce his girlfriend. So, I can see what he's saying, but that's not overtly sexualised. Paul Smith doesn't draw it that way. No. He's not drawn in with his ass sticking up. No. Although somebody did point out beautifully... J. Scott Campbell. J. Scott Campbell's Spider-Man cover the Spider-Man in exactly the same position. Dick Coe did. Yeah, (laughs) See, I'd, I'd think that was a bit of a storm and a thimble. Oh yeah. To be honest with you, internet outrage or something that you know, let's get it, let's get upset over something important. I just thought it was quite funny to myself that I would read an essay that used the same panel as a comic we'd be covering today. Yeah, it's a coincidence works very well doesn't it it, does, for this yeah. show, mm-hmm. as we discovered last week. <laughs> Kitty's a great character in these early years. Resourceful, smart, very tenacious. It's no wonder she caught on. I don't know what she's like nowadays, though. Do you? No. Last was she in Morrison's X Men run? She got abandoned in outer space no, in Joss Whedon's run. Because she returned right. in Joss Whedon's run. Right, so she's not in Morrison's stuff. Yeah, I don't recall what happened to her after that. As far as she's I know. She's still floating out in space. As, yeah, as far as I know, she's still in the giant bullet. She must be back, I presume. Yeah, probably. She's wasted in Days of Future Past, I'll tell you that. Even as Ellen Page. Even as Ellen Page, that yeah. Was, that was a win-win casting what for me. What a waste of Ellen Page <laughs> that film was. What a waste of time and money that film is. Yeah, there's one really great scene in it. The I rest of it's not seen it. I just have no interest. I think it's Brian Singer. I think I'm just not interested in Brian Singer's films. I think you can look at all these yeah. films and go, there's some brilliant set pieces. Yeah. X-Men 2, The Attack on the White House is brilliant. And the stalking, the, atta- the Wolverine doing Berserker Rage in yeah. X-Mansion. And Superman Returns, the flight, the aeroplane save is brilliant. Yeah. In Days of Future Past, there's a Quicksilver scene that is utterly, utterly magnificent. Right. But the rest of the film is like... 
this is a bit dull. I'll be honest, I'd be happy if he did X-Men 2 and that's it. That was the only film he's ever done. Mm. Anyway, we're not talking about Days of Future Past. We're talking about this issue of The Uncanny X-Men, which I thought was pretty excellent all round. Whilst there are similarities to X-Men 144, where Kitty fought the Nagari, this isn't so much as a horror film as a teen drama. There's a lot of humour that Claremont mines through dialogue and a number of subplots bubbling along, most of which I omitted from the recap as being irrelevant to what we were looking at, and because I'm a lazy bugger by and large. Yeah. Claremont is aided immeasurably, in my opinion, by Paul Smith, whose command of facial expressions and wide-eyed open style really suits an optimistic character like Kitty. This is very much an interlude, a respite from whatever adventure the X-Men were on before, something to do with the Starjammers, and the Morlock story that's coming up. Everything you remember about what made the X-Men cool is in this issue, and Claremont judges it all with skill. Except you don't agree, do you? I like the Kitty Pride story. Yeah. But my problem with this issue is that Clermont is very, very dense, and there are a lot of characters in the X-Men, so he, he gives each and every single member of the X-Men their own little subplot, and there are way too many subplots for a story that's about Kitty Pride. You think? It's good that in a long run there are subplots but I think he's introducing a subplot for every single character of the X-Men in a story that's primarily about Kitty In a Kitty standard Price. 22 page issue. Yeah. See, see that's what made him who he was I think, the subplots. I didn't mind him at all. I've got to be honest, I actually thought this was a really entertaining issue all round. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I like the Kitty Pryde stuff. It's just they're being interrupted every other page just for, so that the next member of the X-Men could get their uh, Get their time in the yeah. sun. Alright, fair enough. I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree this year. I still enjoy it because I like Kitty Pride and Who doesn't I, like Kitty Pride? Yeah, and I liked her story. Alright, fair enough. By 1983, comics were maturing as an art form. Clement's X-Work, of which this was a great example, was sophisticated and intelligent. Spider-Man was just a great action-adventure romp with great characters, and this typified the Marvel comics of the era. The DC books, while still being more traditional, were also good reads, but Batman seemed to be achieving this by mimicking the plot-subplot character approach of Marvel. And Superman, as enjoyable as that issue was, was no different, really, to the decade prior. This would soon all change. I, I See, I couldn't pick a favourite this month. I think all four of them were brilliant. Thoroughly enjoyable. I think there was too many little plot holes in Batman yeah. for it to be the best of the month. I'm going to go with Amazing Spider-Man. Right, okay. What are you going with? Batman. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, fair news. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it's 1985. Do you know where your mutants are? <laughs> Was that not the phrase in 1985? Something like that, wasn't it? Superman gets embroiled in the crisis in Superman issue 414. Batman takes on Black Mask in Batman issue 386. It's the birth of Spider-Kid in Amazing Spider-Man issue 263. And it's the trial of Magneto in Uncanny X-Men issue 200. It's time for us to get out of town. See you next week. Bye-bye. Good one. Find work for idle hands to do production. 
photographs used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com, and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.